2: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: Slate Money is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German engineered blades, well designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit Harry's.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code MONEY. And by Wonder Capital. Invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com money. That's wonder with a U. Invest in Wonder Capital's solar funds. Do well and do good. And by Open Account, a podcast that gets personable about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umqua Bank and hosted by Jin Park. Download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hello, and welcome to the finance versus business edition of Slate Money, your guide to the entire global economy and or the news of the week. This week, our episode is titled by our special guest, Um, Because not only do we have the one and only Kathy O'Neill, the the blogger and data scientist. Hi. Hi, Kathy. But standing in for Jordan Weissman is someone of much greater stature, the one and only. (laughs)
0: Not at all.
3: Rana Faruha, uh, who's here to... I don't know. Just be amazing. You have you have a book and you kind of have a podcast where it comes out. You have a thing on the radio.
4: I have a thing on the radio. I do a show regularly called Money Talking on WNYC. Uh, I'm CNN's global economic analyst, if that's a a weighty that enough sounds, title for you. That sounds very
3: impressive. It is, it
4: is impressive. Are you also and a
3: young global leader?
4: <laughs> not, not yet. I think I've written too many negative pieces <laughs> about the WEF. Um, and I am Time Magazine's economic columnist, most importantly.
3: Most importantly. So so Rana has this book called?
4: Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business.
3: Which is a quite impressively, um, what's the word? Dyspeptic book, given <laughs> given your your status <laughs> at Time at, at Time Magazine, which is like the the icon of centrism and never really having much in the way of contentious opinions. You have a lot of contentious opinions I actually was going to throw
0: in another title you can give yourself as occupier. I mean, the stuff you were saying, I was like, hmm. Well, well, we talk about this every week. uh, You know, and
4: I would actually, I I would combat Felix's idea about time because since I took over economics there, we've been out of the box for some time. So,
3: yeah. It's true. It's true. The the mellifluous days of Justin Fox are long gone. (laughs)
4: Okay, not going to touch
3: that. I no, I love Justin. He's awesome, but he was never a bomb thrower.
4: Well, time is—you know—time actually has an interesting position in the media landscape because we tend to be uh, a top of the market indicator, actually. Um, And the fact that I was able to get my book cover on the cover, you know, as an excerpt. I think really says something about the political tipping point we're at, the economic tipping point we're at. I mean, my thesis is basically that market capitalism is broken, uh, that the financial markets are no longer supporting business, and it's a big problem. So, yeah, it's a you know, it's a it's a pretty tough statement.
3: So we're gonna we're gonna delve a little bit into a few different aspects of this thesis. I mean, we honestly could spend weeks just talking about this book. There's a huge amount of material in there, but let's start with the sort of 30,000-foot view. And now, what is the name of this episode of the podcast? Remind me again, since you named it.
4: Finance versus business.
3: Okay. Now, what's the contradiction there? Isn't finance something that all businesses need in order to be able to thrive?
4: Well, finance started out as something that was supposed to be a catalyst to business, right? So, you know, if you think about market capitalism as envisioned by Adam Smith, it's finance helping invest everybody's savings into new enterprises. But I would argue uh, that since basically the early 1970s, that role has been changing now and finance has become the game. It's sort of, you know, the tail wagging the dog and business is now in service in large part to the capital markets
0: rather than the other way around. You a lot of time talking about GM and mm-hmm. how GM was taken over from from the car guys to the business guys and the finance and yeah. with the finance perspective. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, no, totally. Because one of the key sources on this book is a guy named Bob Lutz, who was the vice chairman of GM for a long time, and he wrote a book uh, a few years back called Car Guys Versus Bean Counters, and it was really about the cult of the MBA within the auto industry and how that came to be. And he just there was a little snippet about. Robert McNamara, who was, of course, you know, the engineer of the Vietnam, failed efforts in the U.S. uh, in the Vietnam War and also ran Ford for a time and brought this whole idea of hyper-focus on on very kind of siloed metrics to the entire auto industry and then later to many blue-chip U.S. companies because a lot of his alums from Ford actually spread out uh, into U.S. industry. And, you know, Lutz thought, and I came to, to feel as I reported on GM that this was one of the big reasons for their ignition switch crisis a couple of years ago, um, because you know they had these divisions that were not talking to one another, and the root cause of that was that the CFO, uh, the CFO's office, and the sort of MBAs were running everything rather than the engineers, and it, it was just this diametric change. And I began to think about that in the larger context of how uh, the money guys had taken over business.
3: And of course, it's not just General Motors; it's also General Electric, which was officially a too-big-to-fail bank yeah. during the financial crisis. I mean, GM had GMAC, which was a financial arm, which more or less outgrew the sort of car bit. Yeah. Um, this is this is a, something which we've seen quite a lot: is that you can make more money with money than you can by making stuff. That if you sure look enough. at the. You know, the the rich lists. There's a lot of hedge fund managers and bankers and financiers, um, as opposed to actual what you call makers.
0: Yeah. No. And you even have like that really startling statistic that only fifteen percent of Money that's floating around and going through the financial system is actually going towards investment.
4: Yeah, no, it, it's an amazing stat. It comes now, out. What's
0: of, the time
3: series on that? Is that much lower than it used to be, or has it always been lower?
4: It's much lower. It's it's gone down. Um, it, it's it's halved really since the 1970s, and it was um, it's but it's been going down since the post-war era. Um, and this is really deep academic research. And and just to break that number down a little bit, so 15 percent of all the money flowing out of U.S. financial Institutions and actually many other countries. Um, this is not a you know story that's unique to the U.S. In fact, the U.K. is in some ways more financialized, as as you know, Felix. Fifteen um, percent of that money is going into business investment. So where's the rest of it going? It's going into the buying and selling of existing assets, so stocks, bonds. Houses, um, You know, you can argue maybe that the mortgage business is is productive in some ways. People buy homes and then they buy stuff. But it's less productive um, statistically than investing in new businesses, growing new enterprises.
3: And, and just to be clear, the when I rack up a bunch of stupid debt on my credit card, is that <laughs> is that part of the 15% or is that part of the 85%? Yeah,
4: that's kind of the 85%. Actually, that's the whole <laughs> That's another thing that's bad that I cover in my book. I have a whole chapter, in fact, on, on debt. And how, you know, debt, the reason that we have uh, grown debt so exponentially, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, is that debt is the lifeblood of finance. You know, it is where finance makes its money, issuing debt increasingly. And the tax code in the U.S. actually really supports this in
0: ways that I think are very unhealthy. So um, before we go yeah. st- all the way over there, yeah, I yeah, want to yeah. g- bring us back to sort of this finance taking over a business mm-hmm. concept. And I think you make a really interesting case about the way business schools themselves have evolved. Yeah. And what business school used to be and what it is now. Totally. Which are training those those number of Those bean counters, as it were, uh, in the GM. Can you talk a little bit about what business school used to be?
4: Yeah. Well, so business school um, used to be much more like what you would find in a kind of a Germanic model. It was sort of a trade school for corporate leaders. So if you were going to work in um, the packaged goods industry or in the manufacturing industry, you would probably go to a business school um, in an area of the country where that industry was located that was focused on, on that particular industry. Finance was kind of secondary as it was in the economy. Um, but but this is another thing I got, actually, from Bob Lutz, who told me he went to business school before he knew better, kind of like sailors got, get tattoos, so which, <laughs> which really struck me. Um, business schools, uh, in part because of McNamara, who ran Harvard uh, Business School, began really putting finance at the center of things. And so now, Finance 101 uh, is really the core curriculum for MBA students. And by the way, Finance 101 and Econ 101 is still very much efficient markets theory, right? I mean, you know, for- the years been on di- from the financial crisis.
3: And, and the weird thing is that this applies even to bankers, that yeah. in the sort of platonic ideal of how banking works – is that you're a, you have a branch manager of a bank in Kansas, mm. and the branch manager of the bank in Kansas makes loans to local businesses and actually understands the agriculture in the, mm. you know agricultural industry really well and knows a lot about wheat yeah. um, and doesn't really know anything about finance because he doesn't need to know very much about finance. What he needs to know is about wheat and farming <laughs> and like whether these loans to farmers are going to get paid back. Right, right. And what's happened in finance as well as just you know the real economy, is that all of those little local pockets of industry knowledge in the banking sector have been replaced by some incomprehensible algorithm, and bankers mm. basically only know about finance anymore. And that makes it much harder to get those sort of idiosyncratic loans.
4: True enough. And in fact, you know, this kind of has, just to wonk out for a minute on history, this has some pretty deep roots. It goes back to the split between Hamilton and Jefferson about the banking structure in the U.S. Uh, and what it should be. And if Hamilton, of course, wanted it to be big and national, and unified, and Jefferson, who was sort of representing the small agrarian farmers of the South, wanted it to be very local. And interestingly, what we ended up with is a bit of a hash-up, a mix of the two. So you got a a national system um, where investment banking, commercial banking was combined, but there were laws that prevented regional commercial banks from merging for a long time. So you didn't have these kind of local, it's a wonderful life type bankers that could then grow and spread risk nationally the way you do in the Canadian system,
0: for example, which is, I think, much more secure because of that. So one of the things that you already mentioned is is like a negative consequence Mm. of business being taken over by finance Mm. um, is the GM um, ignition problem. And we also talked about like loans to small businesses being less thoughtful. What are the other negative consequences of this?
4: Well, you know, just going back to what Felix was saying about GE being a too-big-to-fail bank until recently, you know, it the more financialized a company becomes, I think the more volatile its share prices, the more risk it has. Um, just to give you a sense statistically, and then I'll, I'll give you a couple color examples, um, since the 1980s onwards, um, American industry has gotten five times as much revenue from financial activities as it did in the early 1980s, so huge increase there. And this is everything from uh, the sort of you know credit servicing to customers that certain companies might do to tax optimization to hedging. I mean, hedging, for example, is an interesting thing because um, energy companies, transport companies, you can argue that they need to hedge the price of oil, but there's plenty of airlines that have gotten deeply, deeply into this business and then they're not so good at it.
3: So there's just, been all of these yeah. headlines as, as the price of oil has plunged to yeah. these crazy historic lows. I've been seeing all of these headlines about... Um, how the the airlines are taking off their oil hedges, well, which just seems to be insane.
4: It's it, right. It's exactly they're like playing at exactly the wrong time in the market. But the bottom line is that they undermine their own business model by creating more volatility in the commodities markets by getting into this game.
3: So let me ask you, because I don't want this to j- just be a sort of fulsome and effulgent praise of your book, because that, that would be boring. <laughs> of course not. Let me let me ask you, like, is there not a case for? financialization. Is there not a case that, say, um, an aggressive and ambitious company like Tesla or Uber can get billions of dollars of investment from the finance world um, and use those billions of dollars to really kind of change the planet in a way that might not have been possible from your local bank?
4: Um, for sure. But then, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Uber as an example because that, that, that gets into a whole other paradigm of what financialization has done to the tech industry. And I think in recent years, you could argue that it's really taken a lot of big tech companies kind of away from what we think of as the Silicon Valley model of really innovating, spending a lot of time on technology. Um, I don't want to get so much into Uber because I think that that's kind of another story. But let me talk about Apple for just a minute because that, I think, is a very interesting story of a company that's become quite financialized. So... I would argue, and some people might argue differently, but I would say that I don't think there's been a real game-changing technology from Apple since Steve Jobs died in, in 2011. And the share price has been wobbly over that time. I mean, it's definitely um, sunk at various points. And so the company has spent a lot of money issuing debt at very low rates, which of course we have because of the financial crisis, um, to pay back money and buy back stock, which makes uh, investors like Carl Icahn very happy. Until quite recently, he was tweeting about every two seconds that they should do more buybacks in the stock price would get jacked up artificially because, of course, that's what share buybacks do. Um, But then the minute that there was bad news, real bad news, a decision taken by the Chinese, which would affect the, the, the market share potentially in the Chinese market, Icon dumps the stock I mean, Buffett came in and bought it, but the whole point is that this creates a very volatile game that these companies play. By the way, there's another kind of Kafka-esque element to all this, which is that Apple, of course, is more involved in the capital markets at a time when it doesn't need any capital. You know, it's got 200 billion dollars uh, in in money sitting overseas, and many of much of it in offshore accounts. Now, of course, it doesn't want to bring that money back and pay the U.S. Uh, tax rate. And you can make an argument that that's you know that's a very smart thing to do, but it just shows you how kind of Kafka-esque the market system has been. So, That
3: is the perfect segue to to the next segment where I want to really talk to you about this question of stock buybacks and whether they're good or bad, whether Apple spending billions of dollars buying buying back its stock is bad for Apple, whether it means that... there's a sort of opportunity cost, which is the implication not only of that particular example, but kind of of your entire book. If we, if it, if, if it was doing less of that, then it would be doing more of the other. But before we go into this whole question of stock buybacks, I need to thank the sponsor of Slate Money this week, which is Harry's Razors, which are this wonderful combination of American and Germanic in a weird way. A maker. They're a maker. They make razors in Germany, in a factory, which they bought with $100 million, which they raised in venture capital in America.
0: Oh,
4: fabulous. You
3: see? So it's it's a nice little combination. It is. Well, you know
4: how I feel about the Germans. They
3: took their money, they invested it into a real factory, and now they make these razors which have five blades, and they shave you super smooth. So German. Love it. It's great. And you can get a great shave, and you can get a whole starter kit. Um, if you go to Harrys dot com, um, H A R R Y S dot com for ten bucks, which is kind of amazing, you get the razors and you get the little non stick hand, non slip handle, and the shave cream, and three of those amazing like five blade razors. Buy my husband one. Buy buy your husband one, and it's all of ten bucks because it's a fifteen dollar kit minus five dollars off the first purchase, which you get with the promo code money so you go to harry's.com put the promo code money in and then when you love it you can just set up a subscription thing and they just arrive automatically and it's so much cheaper than if you go to the drugstore and buy like the the brand razors (sighs) a sigh of satisfaction financialization at work (laughs) (laughs) makers makers so okay so back to this question of apple
0: Mm. Actually can we nice. can we before we go into Apple, mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit about makers and yeah, takers? Absolutely. Because I found it pretty fascinating uh, how you redefined those terms. Um, away from the Romney version.
4: Well, I was so... <laughs> and, you know, it was actually Paul Ryan that first used those terms. And, and Romney pop, popularized it for sure. But but Ryan first used those terms in the 2012 election cycle, you know, to refer to the 47% of Americans that were not paying any income tax and uh, apparently the capitalists that were doing all the good things and, and that we should be so happy about. And I just found it really, really offensive. I mean, I, you know, I'll come clean here and say, um, I grew up in the Rust Belt. I grew up in a tiny town in rural Indiana. My dad is... A an electrical engineer. He's an immigrant. He ran and runs a small manufacturing business. So I have a little prejudice towards makers, you know. Um, but I, I just found that so uh, wrongheaded because if you look over the last 20 years trickle-down theory, which is basically what that version of makers and takers is, is playing off of, just hasn't worked, right? I mean, you know, we, we do not have a system in which the owners of capital are actually producing um, uh, greater prosperity for the whole right now. And we just need to look more carefully at why that is. And so I wanted to flip those terms. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was really galvanized. One of the key statistics in my book, is that the financial sector as a whole, so not just banks, but insurance, um, mutual funds, you know, kind of the larger finance industry, creates um, 4% of jobs in this country, but it takes between 25 and 30% of all the corporate profits in the country. So that number to me is like the it's oxygen crazy. is being and sucked out of the
3: room. The thing which strikes me about that statistic is that if the, if, if the finance industry was efficient,
4: yeah, right, exactly. then, then
3: it would be a tiny sliver. Then all of those profits would be competed away yeah. and they would do their intermediation at incredibly low mm-hmm. cost and they would have – Low-cost, hyper-efficient capital allocation services, which made very little
4: money. You've just hit the nail on the head because over the last forty years, as finance has gotten bigger, it's also gotten more expensive. It's ama- it's just the exact opposite of what's supposed to happen. There are everything, no economies of scale here.
3: Everything else in the world gets cheaper as you get more of it, except for exactly. finance, it exactly. gets more expensive. Exactly. Hmm. Um, so let's but let's come back to this question of Apple and stock buybacks, because. Apple is this hugely successful company. Now, you're right, it hasn't innovated very much in the past few years, Um, although there's no particular reason to believe, in my mind, that, you know, past performance is a great indicator of future innovation. Um, The question is, what is it meant to do with all of these billions of dollars of profit that it's earning? Uh, You know, we've seen in the pharmaceutical industry over and over again that just because you're making billions of dollars doesn't mean you can just magically create innovation out of thin air. And we've seen with Apple that even when you're not making billions of dollars, you can be incredibly innovative. There doesn't seem to be any correlation whatsoever between innovation and profit. So what are they meant to do with the profits if not return it to the shareholders?
4: Okay, so I want to come to that question. But first, I want to hit something on on pharmaceuticals, because actually, I, I have a whole chapter in my book about the pharmaceutical industry, which is the most financialized of any industry. And in fact, there was this really famous Morgan Stanley report in 2010, that argued that the pharmaceutical industry, which like is responsible for coming up with drugs to make us healthier and save lives, should just give give up R&D altogether and just essentially do financialized in- investing, do mergers that would kick up the share price, do
0: buybacks. And, and that's what Valiant did, that's what, actually. Right. I mean, the, and, you, know, you picked your headline, I'm kind
3: right? And I'm kind of sympathetic to this because, oh God, because the pharmaceutical industry, if you look at history, is really bad at R&D. Mm-hmm. It's much better to allow the small little biotech industries to do the R&D, and then when they manage to come up with some wonderful drug, then you acquire that biotech company for some vast amount of money, and then you have a new drug. That's a much more efficient form of R&D than just spending a whole, about, a whole bunch of money, which has we've seen over and over and again from pharmaceutical companies not only in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and also in Switzerland. It just doesn't turn into innovation. I'm
0: not a lab scientist, but I'm assuming that there are certain projects you simply can't do in that with that model, right? I mean, if you have real money, you can do a bigger kind of
2: experiment. Well,
4: it's interesting. Felix actually, ha- you have a point in the sense that there is a model, and actually Andrew Lowe at MIT, um, who is a financial uh, professor, is is sort of doing some Work around coming up with this for the N- NIH to essentially create um, prizes. A, what, to create, sorry,
3: to, like the prize model.
4: Uh, the pri- I don't know about the prize model, okay, but so he's, so he's, pick up let's
3: go back to Angela. Okay, yeah, yeah,
4: sorry. So but the, the point is that yeah a big pharma company could act in a way like a VC right picking from amongst these biotech companies but right now they're acting like giant portfolio companies that model is is much less profitable and stable i would argue over the long haul than actually the model you're talking about but it's a different model i mean you could you could bring that power and that money to funding real innovation. But right now, you're just, you know, these pharma companies look like uh, portfolio management companies where nothing connects to each right. other.
3: Right, and I'm, I'm saying, well, to be clear, I'm saying that they don't need to fund the innovation. That You can fund the innovation in the equity capital markets and the venture capital markets where you get a bunch of venture capital and going risk down, capital though. going into the biotechnology sector and then if if one of those biotechnology companies winds up with a blockbuster drug that company becomes incredibly valuable and inevitably winds up being bought by sanofi or someone someone mm. I mean, like that can i make
0: it i'm sorry mm. just like this this model which i haven't mm. we haven't discussed this before but like imagine you do that with you know research writ large then no, no you're i'm gonna,
3: not saying you do this with r- research i'm just saying but if you did large, that you're. i'm just mm. saying you can't that, that historically speaking, if you look at the, pharmace- the big pharmaceutical companies, they're not very good at basic research. That generally happens in, in the academy. Mm-hmm. And they're not very good at inventing drugs. And if you can take that money and instead take it out of the big pharmaceutical companies, which are bad at – creating drugs and give it to a whole bunch of little baby companies, which are much more incentivized to create drugs. I'm not convinced that's not a good thing.
4: Well, I'm not sure that that actually, and this is kind of another whole other podcast about the nature of what's needed in drug development innovation. I'm not sure that that actually tackles the problems of today that would require lots of de-siloing across different areas of research because you would have lots of independent projects operating separately. But you're hitting on another point that actually I, I would love to, to to mention, which is that a lot of basic research would was done by the U.S. government. And this actually connects to what, what your question about Apple and, okay, what is the point of Apple? What, it should, what should it be doing? How should the company be run? Should it be run simply for the benefit of shareholders or is there some larger group of stakeholders that, that we should be taking into account? And I would argue that there is something a little weird about a company uh, where you, know, you look at the iPhone and pretty much every part of that device that is smart was funded by basic U.S. government research. And yet you have now you know the world's most Successful corporation taking just enormous profits, putting them in offshore bank accounts so that the U.S. government cannot get a share of them, um, and handing back money to the richest Americans, creating a uh, you know the wealth divide, it, enlarging it, um, making less jobs than the previous generation of tech companies did. That just doesn't work. I don't think that that sustains an economy like the U.S. And I think that you just have to rethink. And there are other governments. I mean,
0: Israel, Norway. There are different ways of dealing with this this sort of paradigm. Oh. Okay, Can I just so jump in and say, yeah. like, we, we've talked a couple of times about the buybacks that Apple's done. But mm-hmm. as I understood in your book, and I, until reading it, I didn't really get this, they're not actually buying back stocks with their, with their profit. What they're doing is they're leaving their profit oh, offshore right. to avoid taxes and then borrowing money from right. – from the market yeah. and then distributing that money. So it's just – it is entirely a way, a way to avert
4: taxes. Yes, that's right. And can I just – one more thing that Apple does that's amazing, um, which Bloomberg has covered very well actually, is that it, it – a lot of these big tech giants actually now underwrite corporate bond offerings the same way that, say, a Goldman Sachs used to do. So, I mean, they have so much cash on hand that they're – they're acting like banks now, but they're not regulated like banks. I mean, it's, it's just an right. interesting they're, paradigm.
3: They're, they're huge buy side investors, mm. right? And and buy side investors less tend not to be particularly regulated, and that you know, we can talk about whether or not that's a good thing. But we have this situation where Apple is throwing off huge profits, mostly outside the U.S. Those profits are staying outside the U.S. for, for tax reasons. It's leveraging itself up inside the U.S. because some um, you know, bean counter MBA type reckons that they, they need a slightly different balance sheet and it's better to have a bit more debt and a bit um, less equity, which, fine, if that's how they want it. I don't, you know, it doesn't, no skin off my nose. I agree with you that... The tax treatment of debt makes that a little bit too attractive, and that we should make equity more attractive and debt less attractive. But the bigger question, which I still have for you, you know, short of like going back 40 years and making the US government some major share stakeholder in Apple with a right to Apple's profits. Mm -hmm. What is Apple meant to do right now with its profits?
4: I think it's an open question. But I think that that conversation is being had at the highest levels. I mean, it's interesting, the Obama administration has taken meetings with some of the tech CEOs to talk about this issue, the fact that they are so incredibly cash rich, that they offshore a lot of money, that they create fewer and fewer jobs. I mean, just think about, forget about Apple for a minute, think about Uber, think about WhatsApp, think about the next generation of tech firms that create even fewer jobs I feel like Apple has
3: created an enormous number of jobs, mostly in China, but still a lot.
4: But but less than GM or GE would have created. It's the scale of the way technology is interacting with finance. You get companies that can have the same market share as the corporate giants of the past, but create fewer jobs. So the, the but the point is, um, the administration has actually taken meetings with these companies to say, what can we do about? It? And they're bouncing around a lot of crazy ideas. You know, everything from kind of you know writing checks to people to you know for the for the value of their data to to who knows what. But it's a conversation that's being had because the current model is very fragile. And can Geron, I just can hey, just jump in and yeah. say
0: like, I don't think it's a question of. I mean, we. A lot of people do think about it morally speaking. They're like, yeah. oh, Apple, those jerks. No, I don't um, think about and it that I, way. Yeah, no. And I think I think one one of the things I like about your book is that it you're just basically saying this is actually what makes sense yeah. for them to do. And in some sense, you could describe financialization as the way that people in business have sort of taken that to the nth degree what makes sense for us and they figure out that like these crazy you know offshoring tax inversion blah 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 all that stuff which is totally financialized yeah is actually good for their company in this current system. So that's the question right. always is,
4: how do we change the system? It's the incentive. I mean, and that's kind of what I was trying to do in the book is in some ways just shine a light on, here are all the really bizarre incentives that yes. we have in the market right now, and here are the behaviors that they incentivize. By the way, just to kind of bring this kind of totally full circle, one of the fascinating things that I've found since my book has gone out in the market, I had thought that I would be getting a lot of calls from Fortune 500 CEOs that were like, yeah, great, you're standing. I mean, we're under so much pressure from the activists of the world. We love your book. Not at all. I mean, they're just afraid of their boards and they're trying to last for three to five years. (laughs) I've been getting calls from financiers and hedge fund guys that are super interested in this because it's about growth ultimately it's about are we incentivizing broad deep economic growth at a time when you know whatever you want to call the 2% economy secular stagnation is this model actually creating underlying growth because at some point main street and the markets do connect in that way and the, the and finance guys know it
3: and that's my big question for you which is which i've put in a couple of different ways but let me just try and boil it down to do we really think that there's a cost in terms of growth to the financialization of the economy, is it the case that all of this money, if it was taken out of the financial sector and somehow put to better use, would make the economy stronger, grow faster, make the middle class richer again and so forth? Is, is that something which we can credibly believe?
4: Uh, I would say yes, and actually, there's some pretty deep studies. I mean, the BIS and the IMF have both done a lot of research looking at the size of finance as a percentage of GDP in economies, and basically, what it finds is yes, after it gets too big, it is a headwind to GDP growth, and it actually that that effect kicks in when uh, finance is half the size of what it is in the U.S. And so- that's
3: intuitively correct as well, because finance, you know, we get obsessed with the stock market, but the real engine of finance is the bond market. And, and bonds are basically how, you know, just like governments and individuals have get crippled by debt, you know, bonds Mm -hmm. are debt. And if you have to pay huge amounts of debt to your bondholders, that's going to make it's more difficult for you to be a really good company.
0: And you could also look directly because you have a chapter on consumer debt. Like mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the debtification of the the average consumer has not really helped their quality of life.
4: No, and actually it's in – in an interesting way, it's a marker of how deeply financialized the economy is because consumer debt grows in part because there's not underlying – uh, wage growth, and so the government—you uh, know, each each president, each administration, Republican and Democrat—starts taking policy decisions to keep people happy, to paper over this slower growth paradigm, which has been here since the '70s, and kind of pass the bucks to, to the market and say, you know, we don't want to deal with that. Create some financialized growth. I mean, Rajan was fantastic on this.
0: Let them point. eat student debt. Let them <laughs> eat student debt. Exactly, and it
3: is true that in the short term, if you rapidly increase the amount of debt in a sector or in an economy, that's going to create this kind of sugar high. Yeah. But over the long term, that's unsustainable. What what that totally. means for China we, is, a, is for something else, Ooh. another podcast entirely. Um, but I want to move on to the other huge part of the finance industry, which we haven't even touched on yet, um, which is the, the other huge part of what Adair Turner in the UK calls – socially useless capital. (laughs) Um, It's not just bonds and stocks. It's also houses. Houses. And so, so yeah. So, but before we go on to houses, I want to talk about another, well, form of financialization, which is um, solar panels. Solar panels are an interesting investment because they are ethically happy. You know, they, they they help save the world from global warming. We basically want to maximize the amount of renewable energy that we have in the economy. And one of the easiest ways of maximizing the amount of renewable energy in the economy is by slapping solar panels on everything. Um, and ideally, people would just reach into their pockets and pay a bunch of cash for these solar panels. But as we know, a lot of people don't have a lot of cash lying around. And so what you wind up with is this Financial opportunity, basically, that you can finance the installation of solar panels around the U.S. economy and get yourself a decent return on the order of 11% or so yeah. and have more solar panels in America, which is a good thing, not only financially, but also for the planet. Mm. So the way you do this, if you want to do this through a slate money sponsor, <laughs> <laughs> is to go to Wonder Capital, W-U-N-D-E-R, Wonder With A U, um, which is based in Boulder, Colorado, which is and it make and it allows investors sadness. to to invest in solar p- projects not just in Colorado, but everywhere. And you have two choices. You can, you can go into the Wonder Income Fund, which gives you 6% over a 10-year period, or the Bridge Fund, which gives you 11% over a two-year period, and it's all to be found at wondercapital.com slash money, wondercapital.com slash money. Okay, housing. Housing. Housing.
0: I have, I'm so fascinated by this topic, mm-hmm. um, because I've been sitting in a horror. Yeah. Um, watch, post- financial crisis yeah watching all these private equity groups buying up oh, the foreclosed houses and you really you're also horrified I, I am i want you to i want you to like share <laughs> that with me
3: i want to bond they're, over they're, my horror they're the liquidity providers let me oh, let me okay oh. let, me, let me let me take the devil's advocate <laughs> position here
0: um
3: i knew which it. is which is which is okay let's First of all, put things in perspective. If you live like I do in you know, New York City, mm. um, you have seen house prices rebound enormously from the financial crisis, and in fact, they didn't even fall that much in the financial crisis. If you're in Miami or in another little baby housing bubble, if you're in London or Vancouver, you know house prices are through the roof, and everyone's like, "Wow, you know everything's rebounded." That's not true. If you right. If you go to Ferguson, Missouri, more than half of the houses in Ferguson, Missouri are still underwater from mortgages which were taken out before the financial crisis. If you go to Detroit, if you go to Baltimore, if you even go to areas around Oakland, California, which you think of as having this big housing boom. There's a lot of underwater people there.
4: Totally. There's actually this great conference board study that um, about 60% of all the gains in the housing market since 2008 have been in the top 10 markets. So it's really, really bifurcated.
0: It's the the rich people where they live versus
4: everyone else. And
3: so, so, yeah, if you're not in San Francisco or Washington or New York, then it's it's a very different kettle of fish. But here's the problem if you're in Ferguson or somewhere like that or or, or Baltimore or the south side of Chicago – is that your house is worth so little mm. that on an absolute basis it's worth it could be worth thirty forty thousand dollars? These are cheap houses. Now, cheap houses in principle are good. Things. That's
0: what I was going to say. I okay. was like, Why in is pr- it bad? Okay. I mean, we all feel sorry for the people underwater. I get right. it.
3: But but in principle, cheap houses are affordable housing, and we all like affordable housing, especially when incomes are not rising. We want to be able to afford you know a roof over our heads. But here's the problem. If you're, if you're poor enough to be one of these people looking to live in a $40,000 house, you don't have $40,000 in cash to pay for that house. You need to finance it. Under Dodd-Frank, mortgage companies are not allowed to charge more than two or three percent for a mortgage. It is not economical for anyone to give out a $40,000 mortgage at um, with with two or three percent fees, it just doesn't make sense. And so the result is that there's no liquidity in these markets. Basically, no. You these markets, these houses can't be bought. They can They can't be sold because they're underwater. They can't be bought because no one can get financing. And there's no way to get the market moving again. The market isn't clearing. So the least worst option, in some weird way, is for. Blackstone to Mm. come in. Is it BlackRock or Blackstone? I can't remember. It's Blackstone. Blackstone to come in (laughs) and start buying up these houses at $40,000 a pot and renting them out. Now, we know that, you know, in terms of the amount of house proud, like the maintenance that people do on their homes and the quality of the neighborhoods and the quality of schools generally goes up if people are owners rather than renters. But at least you have a clearing market now and some option for people to be able to move into those houses, pay rent, and be affordable.
0: Are we going to be allowed to talk?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I have a whole chapter okay, on this. I'm wa- ready whenever let's, you are. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay, so chapter seven of my book is this. Um, and listen, I, you know, let me start by saying you're making a valid point that you have to have someone in these markets that are really, really beleaguered, like what you're talking about, put a floor on the market at some point. And there were places like this all over. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, in the Inland Empire in California, right after the financial crisis, San Bernardino, Stockton, some of those places were really, really uh, hard hit and still trying to kind of, you know, wade their way out of the crisis. Um, And interestingly, Blackstone has become um, uh, via Invitation Homes, which is one of its subsidiaries, one of the biggest landlords in these places. And in fact, Blackstone is the biggest single family uh, homeowner in America now, uh, which is kind of amazing. Now, okay, you can argue that they came into some of these markets and put a floor on, but here's here's the rub. Uh, the reason that they were able to do that is twofold. One, the traditional banks were hamstrung from, um, from doing this in part because regulations dating way back to the 70s actually make it difficult for them to do that without writing in clauses to keep housing affordable for local communities. There's a lot more sort of um, uh, check and balance on what the big banks can do in housing. Private equity didn't have those checks and balances because it's much less regulated. Um, what happened right after the crisis is while the entire country was busy dealing with the too-big-to-fail banks, private equity came in and just bought up all of these amazing deals on the courthouse steps there were no provisions saying you had to keep a certain percentage of the housing affordable. Um, You had to have certain uh, provisions about how you acted as a landlord um, when you started renting all these properties out. And as a result, not in every neighborhood, but in a lot of neighborhoods, you have unemployment rates that are higher than the national average, but rents that are also higher uh, than the average. So So you, you don't have a market that's
0: reflecting the economic reality on the ground. I mean, I actually, so I'm thinking like, I've I've been skeptical for a long time about this American dream of you have to have a house. Yeah, well that's true. But and and it's so theoretically it's okay to have landlords, but the question yeah. is whether these are uh, responsible landlords. And right. it doesn't look like they are. They're raising rents and making things unaffordable well, for the people living there. Yeah, and it's, it's not particularly also, good place to live anyway.
4: Talk about a, 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 an industry that's really populated by makers. I mean, landlording is a very mom and pop business, right? I mean, talk about something where you really need to know your customer, you know, you, you need to, you're in these people's homes, you know, and um, this is not something I would think that a private equity company is particularly well set up to do, and there have been a lot of community activists that have done reports around invitation homes, a lot of complaints about uh, how these properties get taken care of. I tried to actually do a big um, interview with them for my book, and, and they declined, uh, so
0: I don't have a whole lot of information but about we have that. But we have some idea, because you talked a little bit about how distant the the landlords are how you that's can't right. actually even find the person to complain to.
4: But that's right. And that's a key thing because I did speak to some community activists and civic leaders that said, you know, private equity can work when it's more closely tied to the community. That they've had much better experiences with local players that are invested that are not going to cut and run that that have a reason to be there and stay in the community. Um, But, you know, you're raising another point, which people like Bob Schiller, Schiller, uh, the the Nobel winner from Yale, have have said, which is that should our economy uh, revolve so much around housing? And that's a whole other question. The problem is that all the pieces work together. I mean, you know, homes are still where most middle class people keep their wealth. And until we kind of rejigger the entire system, I think you can't argue that we should become uh, a renter society en masse.
3: So I'm a huge believer that we have – far too much home ownership Mm -hmm. in the U.K. I mean, it's not in the U.S., but certainly in the U.K. as well, for that matter. Yeah, definitely, It's damaging because it it impedes labor mobility. If Mm -hmm. you own a house, it makes it much harder to move somewhere else for a better job. Mm -hmm. Um, And it obviously, it is a highly leveraged financial asset, which, as we saw during the financial crisis, can really bite you during the point at which you don't want it to bite you. Um, And... I feel like everyone would be much better off if we were just Germany and everyone rented. Um, <laughs>
4: Unless you were
0: Italy, and then you'd be really sad if everyone was Germany. <laughs> but, but the
3: the big thing is that
0: can I can I just echo that? I mean, it, the 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 fact is, it's we're better off if we have a consistent rent. Every month, and the risk is on the private equity guys. I don't have a th- problem with that yeah. setup. I just want them to be good landlords. Well, okay, but right, right. The,
3: okay, so the, the problem is mm. that the way that the US is set up right now is that you have essentially rental ghettos, mm-hmm. you have That's right. vast areas where everyone owns their home. And then vast areas where no one owns their home, and everyone rents. And that's the worst of all possible worlds. Because what happens is that the rental neighborhoods tend to be poorer, they have worse schools, that you don't get any of the ancillary benefits from having homeowners. And what we need to do is have much more renting in high income neighborhoods and much more owning in low income neighborhoods. And that would be a better mix. I just don't know how we get there from well, here. Well,
4: it's interesting. I mean, housing policy, getting the right housing policy is is a huge part of getting um, the makers and takers situation right. So
3: the first thing we can all agree on is yeah. that we need to abolish the mortgage interest tax reduction, oh, right?
4: Oh, God, yes. And I, you know, I'm going to come mm-hmm. clean and just say, like... I live in a brownstone in Brooklyn, and there's no way without that tax deduction I would be living in that brownstone. But without that tax deduction, it wouldn't have cost as much. That's right. It, it
0: inflates prices. It
4: so inflates. I mean, it is crazy. I thought I bought at the top of the market in 2007. Nope. You know, it's it's nuts what that those deductions do and how they distort the market. We really should abolish them.
3: Okay. So I think that's – probably what we have time for in terms of the book but you're going I have a feeling you're going to squeeze something in the numbers round Ooh, which is yes. going to be book related it
4: is um,
3: be related. but before we move on to the numbers round i need to talk about open account which is a podcast created by Umpqua Bank and hosted by Sujin Park which talks less about these huge, big macro issues and more about the day-to-day micro issues around money and how awkward it can be and how it's connected to culture and power and class and emotions and how difficult it is to just basically face a huge amount of these these issues surrounding personal finance and money. So, Su Chin Park is the host. She has—
0: Can a- I just say that I was— like nervous the entire time i read the like retirement (laughs) chapter i know so i i I could uh, maybe i should listen to this podcast (laughs) the retirement chapter made me want to like commit suicide
4: i know i know
3: (laughs) so so by the way so you you, you have two choices kathy like number one you can like try and deal with this or number (laughs) two you can put your head in the sand let's do that yeah (laughs) I, I feel okay. like denial is yeah. nearly always the right thing to do. But if, if you if you feel like peeking out from, from you know, picking one eyeball out from within the sand, one way of doing that is to subscribe to Open Account, which you can find in any Apple or podcasting store. It's very easy to find. Of course, it's free. So download and subscribe to Open Account in Overcast or Stitcher or the iTunes store, wherever you find your podcasts. Um Okay, so numbers.
0: Yeah, I have a sad number this week. I, I don't know about you guys, but I've been reading a lot about Venezuela and oh, what a terrible yeah, situation that's is. A
3: disaster.
0: So, um, the rate of death among babies under a month old has risen by a hundredfold since 2012, and it's now at two percent, which is really a lot.
3: That's really scary. So that, I, that's I, like medieval. It is medieval. It is medieval. Yeah, it's awful. Uh. I'm going to just swiftly move on from that because there's nothing I can say about that. Uh, My number is 671,000, which is the number of papers which are freely available on everybody around this table's favorite website, which is SSRN, Mm. the Social Science Research Network. I know that Rana shares my, like we go there all the time to look things up. SSRN has just (laughs) been bought by Elsevier.
0: Really? Oh, no, 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 oh. no, 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 no.
4: Wait, That's, are my free are we, PDFs going what? away? Are they, they going
0: to charge? So what? we can
3: only hope that Elsevier is not going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Oh,
0: my God. But
3: people are not happy about this.
4: That, th- all, th- all these numbers, my number is depressing, too. What's, I have to your, tell God, you. what's your number? <laughs> so sorry, but <laughs> it's four. It's a small number, but a depressing number. Four dollars. Of debt is what it takes to create every dollar of growth in China now. And China, you're right, I am going to find a way to connect this to makers and takers, the rise of finance and the fall of American business. China is the next theater of financialization because China not only has this incredible debt crisis that everybody knows about, but it is in an interestingly similar political situation to what the U.S. was in in the late 60s and early 70s when U.S. growth started slowing and we had these administrations that passed the buck to the financial markets. The Chinese are in that position too. Their growth has slowed. They need a new paradigm. There's a big fight going on. As to whether it's going to be financialized growth or something different?
3: So, $4 of debt per dollar of growth. That's more or less the same as we have in the US.
4: (laughs) Well, but five, five, six years ago in China, it was a dollar to dollar, you know? So, that's a run up that is incredible. And as we know, the pace of increase in debt is more important than the sheer amount. It's not looking good.
3: That's a quick yet depressing numbers (laughs) round. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm just going to end this podcast <laughs> at this point because I. I need. I need to go stick my head in a bucket of something. Um. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Thank you for all of your feedback and letters. We love them. You can always email us at slate at slate dot com. Thank you to Audrey Quinn for producing and to Steve Lichteye and Andy Bowers, the executive producers here at the Panoply network at itunes.com slash panoply. But most of all, thank you to the one and only Rana Faruha. Her <laughs> book is available in all good bookstores and even at a fang like Amazon, if exactly. you want to do it that way. Anyway, buy it anywhere you Amazon want. doesn't make profit, so we should just support them, right?
0: <laughs> I highly recommend this book. It's really excellent.
4: Thank you, guys. Thank you for having
0: me. It's a pleasure,
3: and we will talk to you all next week on Slate Money.